We're going to continue uh, in our study of Acts. Uh, we're going to be looking today at Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 22. We're considering uh, now the, the tail end of, of this, this incredible miracle in which uh, Peter uh, and John coming to the temple uh, to worship and pray uh, meet a lame man uh, by the gate uh, who has been uh, there begging his entire adult life, who's been lame for 40 years. Uh, and Peter and John look at him and say, hey, we don't have any silver and gold to give you, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And Peter extends his hand, the man grabs his hand, and his, and his legs are completely restored. And this miracle creates this giant um, uprising in the temple. They gather around Peter and John, and Peter immediately takes the opportunity, preaches the gospel, uh, preaching that the man has been made, hell, um, made well by the name of Jesus, uh, and that leads to conflict with the religious leaders uh, who arrest them. Uh, and remember last week we considered how Peter then preaches the gospel again, utilizes the opportunity with boldness, declares the gospel uh, to the religious leaders at the temple. Uh, and now uh, the verdict uh, in the, the completion of this first conflict uh, comes before us. I want to um, begin by sharing with you. So I, I've never never watched Seinfeld. I did, in the 90s, I actually didn't watch TV because I was so obsessed with being a musician. I gave myself to practicing every night, and it didn't help. Um, but, <laughs> but I miss Seinfeld. And so, but I have seen, you can't exist in America and not see it, right? And so every time I get on an airplane, every time I'm at the gym, anytime a Seinfeld episode's on, it's always, it's, there's only two episodes I've ever seen, but those two episodes... It's weird. I feel like it's like a plot against me. I feel like it's God has given it to me to use as a sermon illustration. Uh, so the one, the one is where George eats off the top of a trash can. I saw that one. I've seen it like four times. And then the other one is, is the one that I, I want to use as an illustration. And so uh, what's, what's her name? Elaine. She has a boyfriend and she, she gets in the car and she realizes uh, that he has a, his stations on his car radio tuned to a Christian station. And she's troubled by it because he's never mentioned to her that, 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 he's, that he's of any kind of faith background. And so she goes to, to Jerry and George, and I just literally just saw it on the airplane, again, flying home. <laughs> so it's fresh in my mind. Uh, he, they're like, she's like, he, he listens to Christian music in his, in his car, and I found a fish symbol. Uh, and they're like, that's great. Like, he, it's good that he's a man of faith. She's like, but why wouldn't he tell me? Wouldn't he care about my own salvation? And so there's a scene where she confronts him. Have you guys seen this? Uh, as many of you are like, of course I've seen this. Because like you, this is the only episode I've ever seen. Uh, and, and she confronts him and she says, she goes, why didn't you tell me that you're a Christian? And his response was, because I'm not the one going to hell. <laughs> Let's pray. That's my sermon for the day. <laughs> now... <laughs> It's so nonchalant, and I, I think uh, Evan goes, it actually gets better because it goes on in another episode where they go to a priest, and the priest says, the two of you are living together? And, and he said, yeah, and he goes, well, then you're both going to hell. Uh, and then he's all bummed out, which I think is... So, so the, the point of the story is this, is that, is that our concept of Christianity uh, in our modern culture is that concept. It's the reason that that it's so funny is it's actually so accurate. That, that in an age of relativism, in an age in which 
everyone has the right to believe whatever they want to believe as long as they don't push that belief on anyone else. Uh, that has been the attitude that has been, that has been taken. And what it creates, what the Seinfeld episode shows, is that actually to have that attitude, when he says, I'm not the one going to hell, we would never say anything like that. Uh, but what it really reveals is a sort of callousness, that if we believe in something that actually should be changing or transforming our life, it would be in, in a positive way. If it's actually leading to healthy behavior, if it's actually leading to a completely new construct by which we view the world, a new lens by which we live, that it would be actually uncaring of us to withhold that information if that information indeed led to joy, enlightenment, salvation, eternal destiny. And so the joke hits hard because it's actually pretty close to home because it shows how ludicrous it is to actually believe something fervently and try to keep it to ourselves. Uh, Because if the purpose of the gospel, if it comes into our life and actually brings transformation to how we live, naturally we're going to want to share that. If we indeed have experienced the love of Christ being poured out in our hearts and minds, if indeed we've been born again and there's a newness of life and a new hope and, an, and, an, and a knowledge that I am loved by the creator of the universe, why would we withhold that information? And could you imagine if someone asked, why wouldn't you share that with me? I'm like, because I'm not the one going to hell. That is not the response that we would give. And, and, and the reason I share this is because I want us to consider the boldness, the clarity, the straightforwardness of these early followers of Jesus uh, as the root of their spiritual power. And it all comes out of an intimate knowledge of King Jesus. That they cannot do anything but speak out the love of Christ and the gospel, even though it's going to bring increasing hostility, hostility actually that will bring every single one of the disciples, the original the original disciples, the original apostles, every single one of them, with the exception of John, to a martyrdom. Why would they do that? Because something had tangibly impacted their lives where they could not be silent about it. I think that the Seinfeld episode actually shows us the way that we have twisted and perverted the gospel to be self-serving, to be about our personal journey, rather than recognizing that our freedom is not found in our ability to do what we want, but the freedom that the gospel brings into the life is the freedom to live without self as the center, but now Jesus as the center, and it's a freedom that leads us to live right, not however we want. And in fact, when we live however we want, we're not free at all. We become slaves. And so if you will, look with me at verses 13 through 14, because what I want us to see is the root of the boldness of Peter and John. It says of the religious leaders, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They could not deny the miracle that had taken place. Everyone knew this man. Everyone knew this man to be lame and now he's healed He's jumping up with joy. He's praising God. 2,000 more people are added uh, to the numbers when Peter preaches about what happened to this man, and they are confronted with with an undeniable miracle. They can't deny it. However, they're going to find a way (laughs) to deny it 
because they refused to accept Jesus. And why did they refuse to accept Jesus? They refused to accept Jesus because Jesus threatened their position before men. In fact, it says in the Gospels that they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God. Even though they were supposed to be the the very ones who were uh, to help connect the people to the living God, they actually put up barriers to God because they were serving their own egos and their own desires and their own ambitions. So even confronted with the miraculous realities of Jesus Christ himself, they literally rejected Jesus because Jesus threatened their way of existence. And so here they are confronted with the same reality. And in fact, John chapter 7, verse 15, when Jesus stood before the religious leaders and before the Jewish people teaching and prophesying and doing miracles and signs, it says, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied. The exact same accusation is being brought against Jesus' disciples that was brought against him. In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Remember, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus finishes teaching. It says that the people, same word used again, were amazed, for he spoke not like the scribes and Pharisees, but one who had total authority. And so this authority is actually coming through in the person of Peter. Now, why were these men astonished? Peter and John spoke with an absolute boldness, with a a straightforwardness, with a clarity that brought with it authority. They spoke as ones who had been empowered by the living God. And they were speaking now against the ones who are supposed to be representatives of God. And so there is a massive threat and a massive conflict at hand. And I think what's fascinating is that it tells us some things, actually. It tells us one thing that it tells us is the limitations of education. I think this is important. There is nothing wrong with education. Uh, And I think that it's important uh, that God continue to inspire and illuminate education men and women to enter into the realms of academia, even around the faith. I personally did not go to seminary. And I would argue that there are times where I've allowed my own insecurities about a lack of a seminary education to drive me into obsessive learning. And I would just argue that obsessive learning and reading of endless books, in fact, if you read, if you've ever read uh, the great German play Faust, you'll see that the, that in, um, in Goethe's uh, world, that the essence of sin is the desire for secret knowledge. For knowledge does what? Puffs up, but love builds up. And I think that I found that in the early days of Door of Hope, there was a simplicity in my preaching that came out of just a genuine... I didn't know... I was preaching within a few years of being saved. I didn't know the ins and outs of the scriptures, but I knew who had saved me. And I believed in him fervently. And I was compelled to talk about him with everyone that I met. And therefore, I'm like, well, if I'm going to talk about him with everyone I meet, might as well do that in group settings. It's way less exhausting. Uh, And uh, there was just a desire to preach the gospel and to preach it uninhibited. But as I started to lead the church and the church grew, it began to put intellectual pressures on me that I need to actually be more equipped. I need to have a better and deeper understanding of the scripture. Then I hired, I'm like, well, since I don't really want to get a PhD, I'll just hire a PhD because that'll give me credit and credibility. So I hired Tim Mackey, who is brilliant. But here's the thing, even with Tim, 
Tim's education, what made Tim so unique as a teacher uh, and as a PhD is that A, he didn't like people to know that he was a PhD. B, he hated it when anyone called him doctor, which I love to do. Uh, and, and C, what made him such a compelling teacher is that he spoke with a certain humility and continues to do so that actually, in a way, almost undermines his own education because the guy is crazy educated. I mean, he's, he went to school from like 19 until 36. <laughs> he's, a, he's an Old Testament scholar. He speaks Hebrew fluently. He reads it fluently. His, that knowledge base, but for him, it led him to an ever-deepening love of Jesus and a desire to continue to bring the gospel simply to people. But I've seen education do the exact opposite of that as well, where it leads to ambiguity rather than directness, where it leads to nuance, rather uh, nuances around the peripherals of faith rather than the center of faith, which actually has the power to change life, that it leads to compromise uh, instead of boldness. And I think that, that one of the things that we need to understand is I have fallen into this trapping where I have felt this need to understand everything there is to know. But the moment our pursuit of knowledge overrides relational knowledge of the living Christ, we have run into deep problems. I found this incredible quote, actually, from Theophilus of Antioch, uh, speaking of endless reading, because I know you guys are out there like, where can I get Theophilus of Antioch's book? Um, uh, he, is a, he was a writer in the second century, and this is what he said about the character of early Christians. He said, truth governs them, grace guards them, peace screens them, and the holy word guides them. Can you say those things about yourself? Because I, I realize that in, often in times of great pursuit of knowledge, that relational knowledge of the living Christ being governed by truth, and not just any truth, but truth of the person. Jesus said what in John 14? I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What did he say about the truth? He says, if the Son of Man sets you free, uh, you will be free. So the truth will what? Set you free. And what does that freedom mean? And what is the truth? The truth for us is not knowledge or information, but it is actual relational knowledge built upon a person. For us, truth is a person. All truth flows out of the author of truth, the one who embodies truth, and that's Jesus Christ himself. And so when Theophilus writes this, he says truth governs them. He's speaking specifically about the relational knowledge of the truth of who Jesus is as a person. When he says grace guards them, he's saying that the gospel actually is their guide. The recognition that I am incapable of saving myself, that I am impotent to actually do anything for God apart from God's empowerment through me as I humble myself before him and accept his total work on my behalf through his son. When it says peace screens them, it's talking about that regardless of the essence of conflict that happened in the first two centuries, the realities of persecution and even, even death and martyrdom, that there was an interior peace that marked the early Christians, that they weren't overwhelmed by the intensities of the world, but they actually, they actually were able to endure the intensity and the conflict in the world because they had inner peace that came from knowing who they belonged to and that he was able to carry them through to the end. And a holy word that guides. They gave their time to the scriptures. Remember what it says about the early Christians? It says they devoted themselves 
to the apostles' teachings. The te- what were the apostles' teachings? They were the teachings, the scriptures, and how the scriptures pointed to the living word, Jesus Christ himself. And so I think that this is important for us to understand because they were uneducated common men, and this astonished those religious leaders. But what astonished them is that their authority, their power, their ability to maintain calmness in the face of serious conflict and even the risk of death was all driven by the fact that they knew Jesus and they knew him to be alive. That what these leaders were experiencing was the power of Christ's presence working in them and through them in this very moment. It was driven by fellowship with Jesus, which is the only path to boldness and clarity. I think that this is important for us to understand because here is the thing, is that when we actually examine our own walks with Christ, I just would ask you right now, is your walk with Christ more like the the Seinfeld episode where you're like a secret Christian and you think that your faith is about your personal salvation and your own well-being and it actually doesn't really have anything to do with the world around you? I just want you to know that Jesus does not save you to get you out of hell into heaven. He saves you that he might actually fill you with his presence, that you then might be a conduit by which he makes himself known to the, to the lost world. In fact, we always talk about election in these terms. Election is not about who's in and who's out. Election is that God chose you, that through you he might reach everyone. And if we don't recognize that we are called to be conduits by which the living Christ makes himself known to a lost world, then we actually are short-circuiting the realities of fellowship with Christ because fellowship with Christ comes from obedience to Christ in his ways. It's the giving of ourselves to his mind, to his thoughts, to his word. And I would just ask that question. When we think about our own character and the culture in which we live, think about the fact that literacy, biblical literacy among Christians is decreasing along with literacy in general in America. Illiteracy is a major problem in our country. The average American now reads it under a third grade level. And I think this is a problematic when God has chosen to reveal his heart and mind to us in a really big book, a big book that's really long. And if we're quite honest, many of you are not reading. And then we can't figure out why Jesus, why are we silent about Jesus? Well, if you're going to ask the question, why am I silent about Christ? You actually have to begin with a question further back. Do I know Jesus well enough to even talk about him? Because we can't know him if we don't spend time with him. And we can't spend time with him if we never spend time in the word. And so I think that here is the thing. What we need to understand from this text is that Christianity, when it has been most effective and when it, where it continues to be effective is when it is experiential in the believer's life. When we realize that we're not talking about an empty ideology, but we are talking about the living presence of the real live Jesus Christ who comes to dwell within redeemed men and women by faith in him through his spirit. What these leaders saw in Peter and John was the spirit-filled life. They had humbled themselves before their king. They presented themselves as living sacrifices, and their life was lived with a total zealous dedication to all things Jesus. And I would ask the question, what do you give your life to? What drives your daily motivation? What, what is your daily motivation If I was to ask um, many of you, how many of you watch Netflix? You don't have to raise your hand because I don't even want to know. 
But many of you, you're like Netflix addicts. And, or, and there's plenty of other things to watch, whatever it is. But if you think about it, for those of you that really love Netflix, how many hours a week do you give to that compared to what you give to the scriptures? Like just silence. Now let's pray. That's the end of the sermon. I have nothing else to say to you. Uh, no, believe me, this is a hammer I'm bringing down on my own life. This is a hammer that I'm bringing out. It's the question. I've even had this, this question around. There were points where my obsession with growing in knowledge actually surpassed my time given to devotional knowledge, where I would spend more time reading books about the Bible than I would read the Bible itself. I'm like, I've read the Bible. But the thing is, is that God's word, only God's word is inspired by God. And those books that I find helpful in regards to learning more about, and I, I love fiction, so I'm all, I read two novels this week. So I, I recognize I have an obsessive temperament. And the question I even asked uh, this week, I read Clockwork Orange in another book called Lincoln at the Bardo by George Saunders, and they were awesome. But I, always, I weigh that out, um, and Clockwork Orange is not one that's necessarily going to leave you feeling close to Jesus. Uh, <laughs> And so the weighing out of like, am I spending, and I've been really, since I've been like kind of this year, just really coming back to what does it mean to be a spirit-filled man? I realized that being spirit-filled means that I'm obedient. And part of that obedience is making regular time to spend with my king. But I still find that there are so many things that captivate me. There are so many voices that are saying, come, follow me. And we give ourselves, I mean, you think about for some of you, it's not, it's not even Netflix, it's, it's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's ours. And when we actually measure out, and you, so you think, okay, well, you're, what you're saying, what you're defining is very zealous. And I would argue, yes, yes, it's extremely zealous, which is why the church actually worked, because they believed what they preached, and they lived every moment of every day with the desire to make Jesus known. I was talking with Darcy about her time with Granny, and she said it was this holy time with her the last couple days of her life. And one of the reasons that she experienced such a closeness to God during that time is because the whole time she was there, she wasn't thinking about herself. She was thinking about being a voice of comfort for her grandmother. And, and being a voice of comfort for her grandmother was reading to her out of the Bible, singing worship songs over her, praying over her. And so all day long, 24 hours a day for those three days that she sat with her until she passed. It was spent meditating and praying in the realities of Jesus that he would take granny peacefully. And I think that that reality, we have those moments. I had that moment when I went on my first missionary trip to Russia. I'm like, why did I come home feeling so close to Jesus? I'm like, because I woke up in the morning and I had devotions with the community that was there. I led worship every morning. I then went out in the street and I invited people all day long in, uh, in Smolensk and also in Volgograd, uh, and I also did this in Moscow, as well as in another city called Razan. I went on about five trips to Russia. And we would spend all day inviting people to come uh, to a concert in the evening where they would hear the gospel presented. And then in the evening, we would do a concert, we would preach the gospel, kids would get saved, we'd lead more people to the Lord. I mean, it was just insane. And I was like, why do I feel so close to Jesus? Oh, weird, because I spent all day thinking about him and all day talking about him. Is that zealous? You say to me, well, that's unrealistic. But I would argue that there is a lot that we do in our lives that we have a lot of control over. How we spend our time, how we spend our hours. And all I know is that I want to have the presence of Christ over my life. 
that the authority that is preached is not how much I know, but it is the yieldedness that allows the Spirit the freedom to make Jesus known through me. And your spiritual illumination, friends, is not dependent upon your intellectual capacity. Intellectual capacity and education does not necessarily mean that you're going to be a clear, bold speaker on behalf of Jesus. But knowing him and knowing his love intimately will lead to that. A desire to make him known. Even Paul said, I didn't come to you in eloquent words. I came to you in humility, exercising power and authority that comes from the Spirit. And I think that this is important for us to understand. This is why it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we don't believe that God loves us and gave himself for us and actually comes to dwell within us, we will not be conduits of his glory and his kingdom, his power. You will be silent about your faith because your faith will be trans... It'll be... It'll, it'll be too shallow to actually make a difference in your own life or in others. And I think that this is important for us to ask ourselves. It's convicting because I am struck even by this verse in 1 Corinthians 2.16. And as I've been trying to understand, what was it about Peter and John? And the only explanation is that they reflected the very personhood of Jesus. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Are you comfortable stating that. Paul says of us as believers in Jesus that we have the mind of Christ. Do you feel like you think like Jesus? And I think that the point of that is that we have the mind of Christ means that literally we have his personal presence available to us, but we have to actually yield to that presence. The Holy Spirit can't be our teacher if we're bad students. I think that it's important for us to understand I think that the the second uh, reality, too, is like how tangible should the presence of Christ be in our lives? Like what is what actually is the tangible evidence that Jesus is empowering someone? And I I heard this great story. I've shared it before. Alan Redpath, one of my favorite preachers, uh, he was a a British preacher. And at the end of his life, uh, another uh, another pastor went to visit him uh, in in uh, a retirement home and as he was visiting with Alan Redpath, he went to leave and he ran into the nurses. He said, take good care of him. Uh, he's a special man. And then and the nurse said, he is a special man. And this pastor said, I know that he's special. But why do you say that he's special? And she said, the nurses and I have talked, but every time we spend time with him in his room, we all leave feeling clean. Now, I can't explain to you what that means, but I know that I would like to leave that effect on all of you. Like, I just spent some time with Josh. I feel clean. Nobody's ever said that about me. <laughs> or, that, that, or even, have you ever met someone that loves Jesus so much? There is a purity to their life, a light within them that you just sense that supernatural, that X factor. I can't describe what it is other than Jesus is, is, is so real to this person that they exude that sort of, that sort of light, that sort of reality. We had that happen when we were in Russia. I had a group of Russians walk over to us, and they, they said that we asked them why they were following. They were following us around, and they said that they, they were following us because we had light in us. That was interesting. Was I aware of any light? I wasn't aware of anything. And that's the thing is that, they, that God utilizes the yielded vessel to make his presence known. And so it raises the question for you and I, are we yielded? Well, look what happens uh, and I think this is interesting. The contradiction 
uh, is that these leaders recognized the truth and still refused it. And it says, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, so they send Peter and John out, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Notice the contrast between verse 16 and 17. A notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But then notice 17. Here's the contrast. But in order that it may spread no further. This good thing, this healing has happened. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. What were they threatened by? They were threatened once again by the name of the one whom they had sent to be murdered, to be crucified. They recognized that God had brought forth a miraculous healing, and yet they were still in their own sinfulness, unwilling to humble themselves. Peter gives them the offer. He presents to them the gospel. They could have just repented and found salvation. But instead, what they did is that they took the the message of the gospel, and instead of seeing the hope in it, even though they knew that God had healed this man, they saw it as a threat to their own position in life. Now, here's the thing. When I read this, I'm like, my gosh, these guys are crazy. They're such idiots. They're like 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They are, they are worshiping and serving the wrong God. They're serving the God of their own appetites, the God of their bellies, the God of this world. They have been blinded by sin to the reality of the truth of Jesus Christ. And their rejection of Jesus leads them to a hostility toward the gospel that is unexplainable. And I I read that, and I'm troubled by the response of the religious leaders. And And I think that the tendency for us as Christian readers is to try to put ourselves in light of the believers. How close are we to Peter and John? And we're like, okay, I see the gap. They're really zealous. They're dedicated. They're committed. They're humbled. Uh, They're willing to be utilized by God and God's utilizing them popular. That's convicting in itself, right? But it's really convicting when I see myself in the religious leaders. When I see the gospel as a threat to my position in the city in which I live. When I see the gospel as a threat to people liking me um, in my realm of influence. When I see the gospel as a threat to the things that I enjoy and and I'm unwilling and and reluctant to give up when I allow sin to continue to take precedence knowingly over a gospel that I know can set me free, but I'm too afraid to actually make that step of faith to fully accept it and embrace it. And so instead I live compromised and divided. These, these men were supposed to be the representatives of God to the people. And yet they took that position lightly and they utilized it for their own benefit and for their own purpose and for their own ambition. And what they did is that they, they tread on the name of Jesus Uh, and they rejected it. They said the only thing we can do is actually get them to stop talking about Jesus. We can't do anything about the miracle. It's happened, and there's no denying it, but I will deny the one who brought it about. I think that this is deeply troubling because I see often in our own lives, when we embrace our culture, when we embrace our culture to the point where we are embarrassed of our king, and I want you to just ask the question honestly because it's a deeply convicting question. Am I ashamed of Jesus? 
Am I willing to go out into the world in which God has placed me? Because I think for many of you, your Christian faith begins and ends here on Sunday. And for the rest of the week, you might be acting like a practical atheist, living life day to day, feeding your own desires, your own ambitions, silent about the gospel, more concerned about your goals, your career, your hopes, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your children. All of these things take a priority and a precedence over Jesus Christ, and we can't figure out why he doesn't seem that real to us. What I think is that growing impotence within the church in America is derived from this very thing that we've turned Christianity into a self-serving reality, and it never was meant to be that. And therefore, we end up acting far more like the scribes and Pharisees in this story than we do like Peter and John, knowing the truth but denying its power, perfecting in the flesh what God has begun in the Spirit, because there is a refusal to submit our whole self to him and an unwillingness to let go of the things of this world. I think, I think that this is very much what we see in the words of, of Paul in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 10. You want to know what Christian character should look like? It should look like this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowledge, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Can you say that? When I read that verse, it cuts me deeply. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is eternal life, said Jesus that they may know you, the living God, and Jesus Christ, your Son, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Christ. Paul said, I, there is nothing in this world that is worth clinging to if it costs me a, no, a personal knowledge of Jesus. Everything, I count it all lost for the knowledge that I have in Jesus. His life was completely given to it. And I think that when I look at the, at the compromise of the scribes and Pharisees, to see the reality of God on one hand and to literally reject it in the next breath, I think is a revelation often of the compromise that we find in ourselves. Do you feel happy yet? You want me to tell you another Seinfeld joke? <laughs> well, look at the response. And I think that this shows how bold Peter and John were. But P- Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you Rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Notice, they were called to be witnesses. They weren't called to win the argument. Just called to be witnesses. All we can do is talk about what we have seen, what we have experienced, that which we have seen, that which we have heard with our ears, that which our hands have handled concerning the word of life, said John in First John. I think that this reality, they're like, we can't do that. But notice what they do. This assumes that the rulers are not speaking on God's side, Peter doesn't express an apology for this assumption at all. He just says it. And with a kind of disarming simplicity, he speaks as if they must operate on his assumption. We are actually speaking on behalf of God, and you are not. He is putting his life at risk because he recognizes your rejection of Jesus is, in its essence, a rejection of God himself. You cannot have God apart from Christ because Jesus is the final revelation of the Father. And I think that this Peter 
declares this reality because he saw Jesus alive. And the living Christ is being evident in his life at this moment. And I think that this speaks to the reality of what we need in the church today. I want to just close with these, with these thoughts. There's, there are some marks, I think, of Christian character uh, that actually leads us, I, I think actually gives us kind of a litmus test for whether or not we are truly experiencing fellowship with Christ. The early church was marked by these characteristics, and these characteristics were the direct outcome of being filled with the Spirit and knowing the Jesus that they talked about. The first mark, I think, is that of dedication. They were dedicated. Every moment of their day, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. This is what they were devoted to. They gave generously of all that they had. They sold their belongings, and it said that none were with, none were with need. The church cared for one another. There was an utter dedication to understanding the Jesus whom they had come to know personally. And I just think that 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 dedication was part of the explosive growth of the church early on. And I think a lack of dedication today actually speaks to the lack of growth. Where there is no dedication to the person of Jesus, there is no explosion of growth in the gospel. And what are we dedicated to? What do we give ourselves to? I ask that question in the morning. What do you spend the majority of your week thinking about? What do you spend the majority of your time meditating upon? What is, what is your activity filled with? Does it point to Jesus? Does it honor Jesus? The second mark that I think that was a mark of them, and this is a, this is a hard one because we're in Portland, is enthusiasm. Now, here's the thing. Enthusiasm is often, in our society, suspect. It's like, ugh, I don't know. They're way, when I, even I found, I've been plagued with this. Portland is so blessed with cynicism. I, I went, when I went to London, uh, I, I was at HTB, and even I was like kind of overwhelmed by how enthusiastic. I mean, I thought the Brits were supposed to be reserved and not emotive. And I go to this church, and everyone's like, why is everyone smiling at me? Why are they so nice? Everyone seems so happy here. I can't trust this. Uh, that was sort of my, my attitude. I mean, think about how we are when we're like, it was like baby dedication in the last service. And they're like, should we clap? I think we should clap. It's a baby. We can clap for a baby. I was like, <laughs> enthusiasm. We need that excitement to know that Jesus loves you, that he saved you out of darkness and brought you into light. Do you know that? The mark of you knowing Jesus personally is going to be a dedication to him, but it'll be enthusiasm for him and for the things of him. I think another mark of that early church is just an, an immovable or even an unconscious faith. I think about the signs of repentance and faith, of healing, of exorcism, of prophecy and tongues. It shamed the skeptical world of the day because these people lived with an expectant faith that God is going to move, that he is going to utilize them to be witnesses to the ends of the world. And they went out believing each day that it was a sacred day by which God could utilize them to bring more people to Jesus. They lived with that sort of expectation, and that expectation led to actuality, to reality. And I think that faith today uh, is not driven by expectancy. What we need is an expectant faith. And an expectant faith is the outcome of being touched by the living Christ. Holiness. 
This is one that's worth making. What is holiness again? Holiness is not simply a separation from sin, but holiness is a dedication to God and his purposes and his plans. And they were utterly holy. Not perfect. Holiness is not perfection. It's single-minded focus. It's a giving one. So I am dedicated to making Jesus Christ known. That is where my heart is. That is what I want to give myself to. You guys, when I list off these things, just know that I feel the conviction in myself that we can do better as a community of faith. Are we dedicated to the things of King Jesus? I think another mark of, of fellowship with the living Christ is spiritual power. And there is, a, there is naturally a boldness and a courage, uh, and, and a confidence that comes out of walking with Christ, knowing that he's with me. The only reason I'm able to preach week after week is because I believe when I declare the name of Jesus, I don't care how crummy I've been as a human being, if I humble myself to King Jesus and lift up his name, that all, all of the heavens and in, uh, in the, the universe is declaring a yes and amen at my back. Because even Paul said, even when they preach out of vain conceit or selfish ambition, as long as the name of Jesus is being lifted up, God's going to work through it. So it doesn't necessarily make me feel better about my own spiritual plight, but I am confident that no matter what, if I preach Jesus, he will honor it. And I think that that is that calm spiritual authority that comes when we are yielded to the person of Christ as his witnesses, as his ambassadors. I think the final component, uh, the final mark of one who is in fellowship uh, with, with Christ is transformation. How can we deny a transformed life? A life who is living one way and is delivered and is now living another way. I met with a gentleman just a few weeks ago. He said he got saved and he was an alcoholic and, and literally the Lord saved him so radically he was done. He never drank again. Seeing of my own life, some of it's like some of it's more transitional than that, where God gets a hold of us and slowly but slowly but surely we find that our lives are being transformed. As I think back over 19 years now um, of of faith, or actually, yeah, about about 19 years, and I think back on on the beginning. If I look back, the slow transition of life toward ever increasing degrees of intimacy with Jesus, it changes the way that we exist. I am a different man from when I got saved at 28 to now at 44. There should be literal change in our lives. I always say that we're either growing closer to Jesus or we're drifting from him. There is no static position as Christians. And so when we look at these things, we consider the dedication, the enthusiasm, the faith, the holiness, the spiritual power, the the courage, the transformation. Do these mark your life and your walk with Christ? Because what enabled these two men to stand up to the religious leaders of their day was that they had met the living Christ and they would rather die proclaiming his name than compromise their walk to protect their own skins. And I think that we're not having to protect our own skins in Portland, but we often find ourselves compromising to protect our own egos. And I think that's far more disturbing. Let us stand fast. Let us press in and not be content until we know Jesus, until we know his love, until we become conduits of that love. Let us not be silent about our faith in Christ, but let it be exuded in everything that we do. May it be exercised both in word and in deed. Amen?